This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey everybody, I'm Adam. And I'm Matt. And we are Graveyard Tales. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories. We want to invite you out to see us, Hillbilly Horror Stories, EVP Mediums, and Macabre Melts at our live event in Nashville on October 20th. This paranormal event is at the perfect location, Hell Dark Aesthetics, better known as... Hell Nashville. Where you can buy books on witchcraft, Aleister Crowley, or maybe you just want to buy an animal skull or a bundle of sades, maybe some tarot cards or a Ouija board. Showtime is 7 p.m. till 11 p.m. All ages are welcome and tickets are only $10. Now you can get full access to all of us for just $10. Every ticket is a VIP ticket. And EVP Mediums will be performing a spirit box session. Get your tickets from hillbillyhorrorstories.com or graveyardpodcast.com. Welcome to episode 112, Hillbilly Horror Stories. My name's Jerry. Hey, my name's Tracy. We've got an action-packed show tonight. Man, it I'm like, I'm out of breath already and we haven't even started. Seriously. First and foremost, we have the Skinwalker Ranch episode, which is one of the longer ones we've done. Mm-hmm. It's probably the hardest one I've ever had to research. Yeah. You've got to leave some stuff out unless you're going to do two or three episodes on it, and I don't like to do two or three episodes. Right. Yeah, it's a lot. Then... We've got uh, uh, the Graveyard Tales guys are stopping in for a little roundtable discussion on something interesting that's happening kind of close to both of us. Oh, yeah, definitely. On some animal mutilation stuff. So you're going to want to hear that. And then we're going to finish up tonight with an interview with Steve Asher. Mm -hmm. And uh, Steve's been on the show a couple of times. He's got a new book out and he's going to tell you a little bit about the book and he's going to tell us some stories and it's a pretty cool little interview. So this is going to be a long show. Yeah. Probably about seven hours. (laughs) <laughs> All right, may not be quite that long. Of course, we're going to do the iTunes reviews, Patreon, uh, closer to the middle. And we've got a ton of those. We had 18 iTunes reviews. I know. It is amazing to me. I'm just so excited. First and foremost, we always want to say thank you to all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. God bless you guys. You're in our prayers. And while we're on that subject, Robert Betts, who's uh, here in the USA, he's got a program to where they... Um, take out people who are active duty and veterans 
and take them on free fishing trips. Oh, how fun. And right now they've got a ship in, or, or some boats in Florida and are trying to, you know, raise the money to get another boat uh-huh. in San Diego so they can have one on the West Coast too. But it's Warriors on the Water USA. If you're uh, on Instagram, it's Warriors on the Water. The Warriors on the Water in the USA is the uh, Facebook page. Yes. Warriors on the Water if you're on Instagram. And it looks like it's uh, for the website, warriorsfish.org. So to give them guys a look, and then if you feel the need to maybe try to help them out, throw a couple bucks their way, do that. Also, in Australia, mm-hmm. you've got uh, Brad Collier and uh, his group. They have a motorcycle group over there. Right. And they raise money for ex-military and vets that have uh, PTSD. Mm-hmm. And they just wanted us to kind of, you know, mention to them that, that that's something that they'll do. Him and his girlfriend are going to start... A podcast to try to raise awareness. So, so we wish you the best of luck, Brad and Carmen, on this podcast and raising the interest. And thanks for the kind words, saying that we were an inspiration to help get you started on that. That means a lot to us. That's all part of what we, you know, why we do this thing is is for things like that. The uh, group that they're using over there to raise money is Ward Seventeen. So look it up if you're over in Australia and you want to help them guys out. Pretty yeah, cool. please do. He said uh, he he shaved his beard off. Yeah, I saw and that. And he was able to raise like eight hundred bucks. That's really awesome. So that's awesome. And you look good with and without that beard, honey. As usual, we want to tell everybody that um, if you're going through a tough time in life, feel free to give us a call. If you just need to talk, uh, you can be supported in the group. So if you want to get in the group and and uh, mention that you might be having some issues, you'll get plenty of support in there. Or if you just want to call the suicide hotline number in the United States, it's 1-800-273-8255. And if you're more of a texter, 741-741. But more than anything, just talk to somebody. Trust me, people are willing to lend an ear, uh, especially if you're going through a tough time, even though you might not think they are. Absolutely. Call anytime. Last but definitely not least, um, I want to say thanks to Scott and Tanya mm-hmm. who stopped by the store. They stopped by the store the other day and, and saw me. And they were so they nice. were actually in Lexington from Chattanooga, Tennessee. They stopped in and said hi, and we took a picture and posted it, and that was pretty cool. Yeah, I wish I could have been there. I do too, but you weren't. So. I know I was not. <laughs> but that was really nice of you guys to stop by. Thank you so much. That meant really a lot to Jerry. And we're going to end on on this before we get started on the show. Uh, last week at the Kentucky football game, there was a tragic accident out front where a uh, four-year-old was hit by a car and uh, while he was waiting with his family to cross the road. And uh, unfortunately, a couple of days later, the young child, Marco Shemwell, passed away from his, inter- yeah, uh, his, his so sad. injuries. It's just um, it's horrible. Adorable little boy, family's life changed out of something that's as fun as a sporting event. Yeah. It just goes to show you never know uh, when somebody could just be gone in, in the blink yeah, of an eye. Yeah, it was very sad, and our prayers go out to them. I can't even imagine, I mean, what they're going through. So, and The University of Kentucky football team, what a class act. They uh, went out and played a fantastic game last night, and they took the game ball to uh, Marco's family and gave them the game ball. And the football team is also, and the first responders Mm -hmm. as well as the football team are all going to be honorary uh, pallbearers at the funeral tomorrow. Wow. How amazing. You you guys are in our thoughts and prayers. Yes, you are. Along with all of the people 
who have suffered through the uh, Hurricane Florence. Oh, my gosh, I mean, yes, gosh. The death toll just seems to keep rising and rising. And, and uh, we just hope you guys end up making it home safe, first and foremost. And then hopefully you don't experience too much damage, or at least it's covered by insurance so you can right. just and get back to normal life. On that subject, um, I know we have a lot of friends, listeners out that way. If you guys need anything, just shoot us a message or something. We could try to get you guys uh, like a care package, um, anything like, you know, toiletries or anything like that you all would need. Uh, just let us know, and we'd be happy to help you all with that. Absolutely. All right. Are we ready to get into Skinwalker Ranch? Oh, I am ready. We were going to do this a, a long time ago. Oh, gosh. And <laughs> there was a rash of shows that all did episodes. Astonishing Legends did mm-hmm. one. Um, I know the guys from uh, uh, Ohio have done an episode on it. I can't imagine it's going to be anything similar to what the episode we're going to do is. Because oh. I'm sure there was all kinds of stuff in there. That oh, yeah. We, we probably won't talk about. Probably like feces and stuff. So oh. we won't talk about Ugh. it. Okay. But yeah, Mike Brown, Police and Terrorists, he did a, a copy. Yep. I mean, just everybody did one. And it all almost at the same time. So we decided to kind of put it off for a year or so, which is what <laughs> we did. And it's been about a year. Has it really? Uh-huh. So Skinwalker Ranch, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it literally has been called the Disneyland of paranormal. Man. Everything that could go on is out there. So we're talking UFOs, cryptids, animal mutilations, and strange light anomalies. That's a bunch of stuff. So this place is in, uh, or I should say near Ballard, Utah. And it was most people call it Skinwalker Ranch, but some people call it the Sherman Ranch because the family that lived there was named the Shermans. Most know it by Skinwalker, though. So this name came to be because Native Americans believe that the ranch is cursed by evil creatures known as skinwalkers. So let's discuss a little bit what a skinwalker is. We'll get into more detail, but mm-hmm. just for the sake of getting into the story. In Native American beliefs, a skinwalker is a shapeshifter. It can be human at times or an animal at times. And that's the basic definition of what a skinwalker is. Like I said, we'll get into more detail in a little bit. Skinwalker Ranch is almost 500 acres. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good little-sized place. It borders the, the Ute Native American Reservation. The Utes will not enter the area of the ranch because they think that it's a fertile area for skinwalkers. Oh, wow. The Utes take this very seriously. They believe the skinwalkers are powerful spirits that are here pretty much because of the curse that the Navajo put mm-hmm. on them. This was generations ago. This mm-hmm. wasn't like, you know, last 10 years. This goes back, way, way back. The ranch is at the center of this legend. The Utes say that they reached uh, that this this ranch is like the path of the Skinwalker. Mm-hmm. Tribe members are strictly forbidden to even step foot on the property, even today. No way. Yeah, it's been that way for a very long time. Skinwalker Ranch has been a hotbed for UFO uh, activity going all the way back to the, like the 1950s. Wow. And well, I mean, it even goes back even further. I was gonna than say, that. I bet it did go back a little further. But the 1950s is when it really started getting a uh-huh. lot of publicity for that. It didn't become really well known, though, to most people until the 1990s. In 1994, Terry and Gwen Sherman bought the ranch. Now, this is not their real names. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't know if any, if their real names were even out there, but everybody kind of knows them as this. Some people call them the Gormans. Mm-hmm. Either way, they're all meant to kind of protect their um, identity. 
So did they know about the ranch before they bought it? Like the goings-ons or? No, they didn't at all. But it wasn't going to take them long to find out about it, trust me. Now, the previous owners, they hadn't lived there for like seven years. And when the, the Shermans bought this, they got it at a bargain price. Oh, so it was vacant for seven years. Mm-hmm. Okay. The price was not really suspect at the time because the place needed a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really think much of it. They thought that's why they were getting such a good deal. There was one strange clause, though, in a real estate contract. It said, no digging on the land without prior warning to the previous owners. That was in the real estate clause. Oh, bizarre. Yeah. Now, so they go in this place. They first get there. Every door had a big um, bolt lock, dead bolt lock. Every door? On the inside and the outside. What? (laughs) Every window was bolted down. And then outside of the ranch, there was like these heavy-duty metal stakes in the ground with these big-ass chains. Mm -hmm. Where it was obvious that people had um, some kind of guard dogs or something chained up there. Or some kind of large animal that they didn't want to get away. And that was on both corners of the house. I mean, did they notice right away that, okay, that's weird. Why is there dead bolts on both? I mean, I guess they did because they brought it up. but, but... But it's like, you know, huh. You know, one of those things until you see... The problem, I guess. So the problem started day one. They moved in. Terry Gwynn and her two children were uh, outside. They were kind of unpacking some stuff. They look, look over and they notice this wolf-like creature. So they figured it was a coyote or a wolf, obviously. Yeah. But the, the creature kind of got closer, and it seemed to be unfazed at all by the humans standing there. Standing there, there yeah. As a matter of fact, it... Walked right up to him. And as it got closer, it was obvious this thing was like two to three times the size of a regular wolf. Oh, gosh. And they just stood there? Yeah. Whoa. Well, and the wolf itself, it, it seemed determined to make contact. Yeah. So it just walked straight up to him. And it even allowed Terry to reach out and pet it. Oh. So the kids were all like, you know, oh, can we keep it as a pet? And all this. <laughs> they they <Yeah>. were. <laughs> and this thing, was supposedly it was silver. It had beautiful glacier blue eyes. Ooh, sounds nice. It does. But it became quickly and painfully clear that this was not going to be anybody's pet. So this wolf decides it's going to just, you know, it's done chatting with the with yeah. the Shermans. And it starts walking off. It looks over. It sees a calf that's kind of got its head sticking out of like a wooden fence, mm-hmm. you know. You know, like the, yeah. the boards would be there and you got off her arm. And as the wolf just kind of started walking by, it just aggressively just snatched the calf's head in its mouth. Oh, gosh. And Terry and his son, they ran over. They started hitting hitting the wolf with, with like a baseball bat and a stick. But the wolf just unrelentlessly just kept attacking the calf. Well, that like, took like, a turn for the worse. Oh, yeah. It didn't, like it didn't even matter. So Terry then pulls out a gun. He's got a 357 Magnum on it. Oh, dang. He, he pulls it out and he shoots the wolf point blank in the ribs. It had no effect. No blood. No wound, nothing. It's like he was shooting blanks. So then he shoots two more times into the stomach of the wolf. Similar results. Nothing. Yeah, I've been hightailing it out of there by then. So after the third shot, the creature released the calf and just calmly started walking away. No big deal. <laughs> so Terry shot that one last time, right, to the heart. Nothing. As it was walking off. So then he goes and grabs his his hunting rifle, high-powered hunting rifle. 
he took a shot. He hit the creature. Now, this one kind of moved it a little bit. Mm-hmm. It was obvious they got hit with something. But it still just kept walking. So then he fired again and he hit it in the chest. This time it tore off like a sizable bit of flesh from the exit where it went through. Mm-hmm. So then the family, they start walking, you know, after. They want to see what the hell's going on. This is They walk toward it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was walking away and they start following it. They get to the flesh, the patch of flesh that, that had uh, been knocked off. They said it smelled like rotting meat combined with musky fox smell. Ooh. So Terry tracked the creature for almost a mile, and he said then the tracks just kind of vanished, vanished, just mm-hmm. like the animal did. Oh, my gosh. Why in the world would they do that even? Why would they even walk after that thing? I guess they're just amazed. So throughout the time at the ranch, the family claimed to see several different types of wolves and other types of, I guess, canine-type beasts. Mm-hmm. Now, a few weeks later, Gwen, she had another encounter with a creature, but this one was a dog-like creature but she couldn't really tell what kind of dog. She mm-hmm. said it wouldn't like the wolf. Now, she did have another situation with the wolf, and we'll talk about that later. But she was so concerned that she contacted the tribe office, down at the tribal office, and she said, hey, what can we do about these wild wolves on the property? Well, she was shocked when they pretty much looked at her like she was crazy because no one in the area owned any wolves, and this area... No one had seen any wolves since the last one was shot in 1929. And keep in mind, this is 1994. So they're like, there are no wolves out in this area. And she's done seen like... Like a bunch of them. Yeah, they've done seen a bunch of different things. So Gwen was pissed off initially and uh, because of this response as she got. And she just figured, well, yeah. we're the new people in town. They ain't trying oh, yeah. to help us. Mm-hmm. It didn't take her too long, though, before she had another incident. She was walking up on the ridge and... She felt this massive gust of wind, like something flew by or ran by or something. She immediately assumed it was like some kind of a large bird or a bat or something like that. This happened again, and she kind of got the sense of whatever it was was big, but she couldn't see it. They seem to think that this, even though she couldn't find anything there, they think that up on that ridge there's an invisible creature of some sort that's up there causing havoc when other people up there... You can just tell the feeling that something's there. Now, she became paranoid, obviously. She decided she wouldn't go tell her husband about some of these events. She also kept to herself some other paranormal activity that was happening. There was a bunch of stuff that would go missing throughout the house. And then it would just turn up in odd places. Like, one of the things was, like, like there was a hairbrush that was last seen in the bathroom. It turned up in the freezer. (laughs) Wow. But she couldn't keep hiding all these strange events when Terry turned around and asked her what happened to his gas-powered post hole digger. It was pretty obvious that she wouldn't go crazy at this point, and the Mm -hmm. kids didn't do it because they were younger, and this thing weighed like 70 pounds. Yeah. So this would have been hard for them to move and hide. She told Terry all these things that had been happening, and uh, then it was out out in the open at this point. The family was able to just kind of fight through it, and a few months later, they're uh, able to move their entire herd of expensive Black Angus cattle onto the ranch. Mm-hmm. Now, around this time, Gwen and Terry's nephew came to visit. One night, Terry, his son, and his nephew, they went out to check on the herd. They saw a headlight off in the distance, now thinking it was trespassers. The three of them kind of followed it. It kept getting further away, though. It eventually took off and went airborne. Going a few feet over the trees. 
They said it looked like some type of an oblong-shaped craft with a headlight in the front and red lights in the back. Could have been a flying Buick. <laughs> it could have been. They said it moved extremely slow, almost like there was no gravity mm-hmm. at all to it. And they said it was super quiet. There was no sound at all, and then it just disappeared. Terry's nephew was, he was like <laughs> so frightened. Yeah. And he uh, decided he was going to go ahead and cut his visit short and go ahead and leave the ranch that night. <laughs> and his parents banned him from even coming back to the ranch. Why? Oh, he was terrified. And they said, that we don't know what the hell's going on out there, but whatever it is, our son's not going to be a part of it. Oh. So then a few weeks later, Terry and Gwen saw the same craft, but this time it made a noise like... Um, something metal banging on metal uh-huh. that was the only you know whatever that sound was was the only noise that it made so they tried to get real close to it but they said it took off as they got semi-close and it, it's like they were watching them yeah so it was like when as soon as they got close it's like yeah they were out of there it left no marks in the mud whatsoever wow so it was sitting there mm-hmm. and then when it took off there was nothing that's well, kind of odd mm-hmm by now, the Shermans were aware that they've made a mistake by buying this place. And they were also starting to hear rumors from the townspeople about the dark history of the ranch. Oh. And hearing from the Native Americans that uh, they thought that the land was cursed. So now this is all starting to get back room. So let's take a second and let's actually talk about the dark history. So the earliest mentions of unexplainable phenomena... And this whole entire region really was in the late 1700s. Spanish explorers were looking for the Spanish Trail, and they passed through the Utah Basin, which is right where the ranch is today. They reported seeing some type of craft in the sky at nighttime as they were sitting around a campfire. Keep in mind, this is way before there's any planes. Mm-hmm. You're talking 1700s. And... Oh my gosh. So then, in the late 1800s, there was an army fort there named Fort Duchesne. It's all reservation now. You know, land mm-hmm. now, but the ranch is surrounded on three sides by the Unitaw Oray Ute Reservation. So, three sides of this place are all part of this reservation, and it's like they've cut that little square out that yeah. they're like, we don't want to have any part of this. Right, yeah. So, in the early 1800s, the Navajo claimed that the basin area has their own. So, the Navajo said, This is ours, we're taking it. The Ute tribe was kind of an aggressive tribe, and they decided that they wanted the same land, so they took it. Not only did they take it, they captured a Navajo, and then they sold them off as slaves to the Spanish. The Navajo retaliated by cursing the land with a spirit that could shapeshift from a human to a wolf anytime they wanted to, a skinwalker. And from that point on, the Native Americans deemed this area as unholy ground. Mm. To the Navajo, they won't even mention the word skinwalker. Because they're afraid that just mentioning it could attract one. Oh, gosh. To the Navajos, a skinwalker is like the um, complete epitome of what they are. They're right. good, loving. Yes. You know, all and this stuff. are evil. And, but they also believe in several different types of uh, skinwalkers, one of which can be a witch. Oh. Like an evil witch. The Navajo witches are the exact opposite. Like I said, of the Navajo, they're evil and manipulating. Legends say that skinwalker... Is a, a medicine man or a woman who committed some kind of terrible act, like killing a relative, uh, to gain some kind of supernatural power. And they're usually related to an animal, such as a wolf or an owl, a crow, or a coyote, but they have the ability to shapeshift into any animal that they choose. I think I still think that would be kind of neat to be able to do that. <laughs> it would. 
So they're known to knock on doors, bang on walls, look through the windows, attack livestock, harass people by just appearing and disappearing. Skinwalkers can be found across the entire American Southwest. So all the Native Americans from the Southwest all believe in some type of skinwalker. So you can see how this would tie into some of what the Sherman's experiences are, especially when they're seeing wolves and dogs and stuff, and then they're finding out, oh, there's no wolves or dogs in that area. Right, right. Gwen had an encounter a few weeks later with a wolf so big that it was as tall as her car. She was sitting in her car and she said its back was even with the with the Ooh. top of her car. Or at least the window. Yeah. They also saw a hyena-type dog one day in the corral with their horses. Terry said that his horses were upset. They were jumping all around. So he said he went out there to see what was going on. It looked like they were trying to evade something. So he said... There was this animal, about 200 pounds, with a big bushy tail like a fox, Mm -hmm. but it was slashing at the horses with its claws. He yelled at it. It jumped out of the corral and ran up to Skinwalker Ridge, and he said it just kind of disappeared in broad daylight. This story didn't come from the Shermans, but it actually comes from what you would consider to be a more credible uh, group of people. It's from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Oh. So two officials said they were patrolling near the ranch, and they saw two humanoid figures standing together on the side of the road. They were smoking cigarettes and wearing trench coats, and they looked like dogs. (laughs) (laughs) He said they were standing upright, and he said they pulled over. They got out of the car, and when they got out of the car, the dogs, they were gone. Oh. But they said there was two cigarette butts, smoking cigarette butts, still sitting uh, on the ground where they were. What about the trench coats? I think they kept the trench coats. Some things were probably expensive. <laughs> they had probably be special fitted for dogs and stuff like that. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> so they said this story doesn't make it into a lot of reports because people think it's so incredible that there's no way it could be true. Yeah. But this actually came from two officers. So oh, I don't well, know. I don't know either. Now, as far as uh, UFO type encounters, Terry and Gwen both encountered encountered several different types of UFO, UFOs and aircraft mm-hmm. while they were there. One in particular was a triangular aircraft, 30 to 70 feet long. In Terry's encounter, he was out inspecting his livestock, and he saw it kind of off in the distance. He said there was no hum. It just hovered around 20 feet or so off the ground. Several tiny lights were on it, and it was glistening in the snow. Ooh. I wonder how it can be so silent, though. Avian technology. (laughs) Terry said it was moving in a slow motion. Once again, like it was kind of uh, searching for something. Mm -hmm. And it kind of noticed him. And when it did, the lights went out. Oh, they weren't interested. And then a few minutes later, it just took off. Now, his wife's encounter happened while Terry was actually away. He was like out on business or something. The kids were gone. She was going to be the only one at the house, so she really didn't want to go back to the house, being the only one there with yeah, all this crap I don't happening. Blame her. So what she did was, oh, she went ahead and went back. She got it was daytime. She got to the gate. They have a gate there. It's the only way in, the only way out, and it's locked. Yeah. So she stops the car, gets out, unlocks the gate, opens it. She gets back in the car, pulls through, and then gets back out of the car to lock the gate back. Mm-hmm. She didn't notice during this getting in and out of the car a few times that a black shadow had cast itself over top of the car. Whoa. When she did notice, she just kind of looks up and she sees this craft, this triangular aircraft. It's the same one that he had seen. 
She tried to drive away, but she said the craft just kind of followed her. And then when she got to the house, it disappeared. Now, that would be creepy enough yeah. when you're home by yourself. Definitely. But a few hours later, she noticed that there was a motorhome parked about 200 feet from the window. From the window from her house? From her house. Oh, okay. It's just a motorhome out there. Mm-hmm. So the first thing so is... So she don't even know who the heck that is, right? No, or how the hell they got in there. There's only way, one well, way yeah, in, and it was a lock. Right. So she decides that she's going to just kind of look at it. And she said that you could see in... There was all these different, you know, uh, equipment and stuff in it. You could see in the, the big windows. Uh-huh. And she said somebody got up that looked like they had to be at least seven foot tall, and they were dressed... Like, similar to, like, Darth Vader, is how she explained it. Oh. And she said eventually it just drove off into the field. Now, she was so panicked, she called her husband. He drove all through the night to get back home to her. He gets home. They go out there that morning, and they're looking at where this thing was, and they find a footprint that was, like, 18 inches long. It was just, like, a round hill, and then... The print didn't look like a regular foot, you know, a regular, like it had some kind of shoe or something on, Mm -hmm. but it didn't have the shape of a shoe or something we would have. 18 inches long. Woo. You know what they say? Mm. Big feet. I don't know. I don't know either. It might not apply to them, so. Nah, nah. They repeatedly saw a UFO that was larger than two football fields, and they could see aliens that were at least seven foot tall in that one. So this is the third now craft that we've seen. Or we didn't see it. So. Well, what they saw, yeah. <laughs> there was an occurrence where their entire ranch was lit up at nighttime. They said just like it was lights from a football stadium field. Oh. So that's three different types of UFOs that they've experienced, and that's three more than I wanted to talk about. No kidding. Because you know I don't like to get into the UFO stuff. But we mentioned that Terry spent a lot of time at night kind of checking on the livestock, right? Mm-hmm. Turns out there's a really good reason why he did that. For the time that they lived there on the ranch, and I told you they got all that expensive cattle, mm-hmm. 20% were lost due to either missing or animal mutilation. Well, that's a shame. Now, a lot of people connect cattle mutilation to alien experimentation. There's two different documentaries that were done in the mid-90s about all these different uh, cattle mutilations across the, uh, the Midwestern United States. Mm-hmm. And this case is no different. So the family found the first dead cow shortly after a UFO sighting. So there you got that connection. It was completely mutilated, but a few things kind of stood out on this one. First, there was a hole right through the center of the cow's left eye. Ooh. Terry decided he was going to stick a wire into the hole, and he discovered that it went straight into the middle of the cow's brain. Nothing stopped it at all. He just stuck a wire straight in because he wanted to see. Mm -hmm. It just looked so odd. Yeah. So he also noticed that there was a strange chemical odor in the air. Another unusual finding is that the animal's carcass had been untouched by any predators. So it was just something with his eye is what they did? No, it was. Oh. There was much more. Oh. The, the, whole, the whole thing was mutilated. Oh, but gotcha. the eye thing just kind of stood out. Now, a short time later, a second cow was found with the exact same hole in the left eye. And, of course, he did the same thing with the wire. Same thing. So that doesn't really sound like a coincidence when you have that kind of situation going on. Mm -hmm. Now, around the time that these things were happening, 
he started having these cows that would just go missing. No sign of them whatsoever, never turn up. Keep in mind, these things were all in fences and stuff like that to where they couldn't get out unless right. he let them out. So the next disturbing incident happens in March of 1997. Terry and Gwen went out to tag uh, one of their calves. You know, they had these new calves that go out there and put the yeah, little yellow the little tags tag in their ears. Mm -hmm. The first one, there was no issue. But they did notice that there was a chemical odor in the air. So they went ahead and placed a yellow tag on it, and they moved on to the next prairie, and they're just getting ready to start working on the other the cattle. Well, about that time, their dog just started going crazy. I mean, he's growling, he's just throwing a fit, and he started barking towards where they just came from with that cow. Well, he decided, the, the dog itself, that it was going to run off, and it ran towards that field. So they followed it. They went back and, and uh, they noticed that the mother cow was distressed. You know, it was obviously anxious and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And then they saw the calf that they had just tagged. Its legs were spread. Its entire body cavity gone. Oh. Its muscle had been stripped out. How does that happen that quick? That's a good question. So they called uh, NIDS, N-I-D-S. That's the National Institute for Discovery Science. They came out and they brought a vet. The vet said that it had been expertly dissected with a sharp object. There was no sign of blood or intestines on the spot. It was determined that it had been killed somewhere else and dropped off there. Now, what's astonishing is the fact that all this took place in 40 minutes. Wow. From the time they left and got yeah. back, 40 minutes. That's, that seems impossible. And the dog... That chased after it was never seen again. What? They just disappeared? Just disappeared. So these incidents had all the characteristics of alien experimentation. The UFO sighting, the smell, the speed and precision of, of um, these mutilations. So the Shermans had described several different types of these possible UFO activities, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of goes hand in hand that that may be what's going on and what a lot of people have always thought with these animal mutilations. Right. They also described other types of phenomena that would be um, a type of activity that might be related to UFOs. For example, they had an invisible chopper. This was something that they said you would hear it over your head mm -hmm. and it sounded just like a helicopter coming in, the, the fan yeah. uh, blade on a helicopter. And they said, but you couldn't see it. It was completely invisible, but you could hear it. Then they had something they called the controller. It was two men's voice. They said it was always sound like it was like, I don't know, 20, 20 feet over your head. It sounded like they were talking on walkie-talkies mm -hmm. and in a language that they didn't they understand. They didn't understand it. Then they had several sightings of blue orbs. Mm -hmm. Now, these were described as glass-like balls about the size of uh, a baseball, but it had blue swirling liquid inside. Ooh. And I know all about some blue balls with some swirling liquid inside. Hmm. These you orbs... You had to go there, didn't you? I had to. Every show. At least once. <laughs> <laughs> These orbs led to an incident that would eventually make them sell the farm. Wow. We'll I would tell. have done been out of there long, long ago. I'm saving that one, though. So before getting into that story... I want to discuss the other incident with the cattle. 
Now, the Shermans were on their way past the corral one day, on their way to town. And Terry kind of mentioned to Gwen, he's like, you know, if anything happened to those four bulls that we got out there, uh, these were like called scimitol cows. Mm-hmm. So they're very rare and very expensive. Yeah. And that's just what they were using to keep populating. These four bulls were the ones that were populating the whole herd that they were selling off. That's how they made their money. But he told her, he's like, if something happened to those four prize bulls, we would be bankrupt. These things are 2,000 pounds each, and they are very mean as hell, as, you know, bulls yeah. are anyway. These are extra mean. So they went to town. They come back about an hour later. All four bulls were missing. Oh, jeez. They looked frantically all over the place to find these bulls, and, then, and the, the corral was still locked up. So how the hell did they get out of there with it all being locked up? Right. They got the only keys and all that. They had this little small trailer. On the lot right there. And somehow or another, during the course of looking around, Terry stood up on something and he looked into the window. There were all four cows crammed into this thing. Now, what was this thing? And this thing was all wired up on the outside, just like it had been. Yeah. So it's like, it would have been extremely hard to get one of the bulls into this thing because of just the room factor. Were they alive? Yeah. But it would have been hard to get one in there from the room standpoint. Yeah. And because they would have been so aggressive, it would have been, you know, fighting and everything. Yeah, I was like, going to say, it probably would have tried to tear Oh, yeah, that. it would have a fit trying to get it in there. Mm-hmm. And then somehow or another, there was four of them in there. All crammed in. Okay. So I mentioned there was an incident that led to selling the ranch. They were only there two years. Mm-hmm. All this happened in a two-year period. So, this incident took place in April 1996. Terry's out there. He's kind of checking the landscape out like he does because, you know, he's afraid of all this stuff. Now, this was before, actually, the cattle mutilation even started because that started in 97. He was just always out looking because of all this strange stuff that was going on. He saw this orange football-shaped orb out in the distance. Now, they'd seen this thing plenty of times. Mm Mm-hmm. They said that this thing would have stuff flying in out of it, or in it, out of it, and they kind of thought it might be some kind of a portal. Oh. Because, but they've seen it so many times, that just they wouldn't face by it. On this particular night, though, one of the, one of the before-mentioned blue orbs, it flew out of it, and it came towards Terry. He's sitting outside. It's got, he's got his three dogs, all blue healers. Mm-hmm. These are like his family oh, yeah. to him, this, these dogs are. So they're sitting out there. The dogs, as this thing got closer, they get agitated, and they start barking at this orb. And and Terry then just kind of instinctively lets the dogs go so they can chase it. I guess he thought, you know, go get them, boy. These things were hovering almost like they were teasing the dog. Mm-hmm. Like it would, it was just making these weird maneuvers, and the dog the dogs were going at it and it would almost stop and the dogs get close to it and they would bite at it and sometimes come within inches of it. And then it would just take off again. After a while, it was kind of obvious that it was kind of leading the dogs further away until Terry lost sight of them. Oh, shortly after he lost sight, he heard the most God awful screams oh my gosh. from his dogs and, and he just assumed the worst. That his dogs were in some kind of great agony just by the sound he was getting. Terrible. Now, 
being scared. It was already nighttime. Uh, this place was dark. He already knows what he hears from his dog. He decided he was just going to wait and hopefully they come home. Hours later, they still hadn't come home. So in the morning, he decides that he's going to go towards where the, the area where he saw the dogs run to. Mm-hmm. At one point along this way, he became overcome with the smell of burning flesh. Oh, no. He then saw in the tall grass three spots of scorched ground. In the center of each one of these spots was a black oily blob. Oh my gosh. All that was left of his dogs was a blob as if they had been vaporized. Why he let them go out there? That's terrible. This was the last straw for Terry and, and he decided to put the farm up for sale. So near the end of 1996... Billionaire Robert Bigelow bought the ranch for $200,000. And he made the ranch home to NIDS that we talked about mm-hmm, earlier. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about NIDS in a little bit. But let's go to the very last night that the Shermans spent on the farm. Is it possible that they had a final alien encounter? So the last night they went to bed. They woke up the following morning and their sheets were covered in blood. Holy crap. Both of their thumbs, his thumb and her thumb, on the same spot on the side, had about an eighth of an inch scoop out of it. What in the world? Like something just dug out part of their thumbs. How did they not feel that? I have no idea. Aliens. Power of aliens, babe. They can do rectal probes and you not feel it. I'm assuming. They also had the exact same dream. Oh, that they, night. Terry about, and his wife? Yeah, about talking to aliens and stuff. They had the exact same dream. So when they discussed it, oh. so probably wasn't a dream. Oh, my goodness. So that's pretty much the story of the Shermans. And that's where I wanted to focus on. Trust me, there are so many other things, um, animals and cryptids and stuff like that, that we could have discussed. <clears throat> but I wanted to mainly keep it on their story. Mm-hmm. But we can't just end there. Because people want to know, well, what, ha- what happened after that? Yeah. So let's briefly discuss what's happened since the Sherman sold. Now, obviously, with all the UFO sightings in the area, the military intelligence officers and researchers were drawn to this area, even when the Shermans lived there. Now, one of them people put them in touch with Robert Bigelow, who had uh, recently founded NIDS. Bigelow had invested part of his fortune into the research of UFOs. That's something he was fascinated with. So when the ranch came up for sale, it was too good for him to pass up. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was focused on the cattle mutilation and the black triangular UFO. But, I mean, there are so many other things on here from the light anomalies. There were Sasquatch sightings, all the skinwalker stuff. Like mm-hmm. I said, there's all kinds of other cryptids and stuff. And the fact that they think that that might actually be a portal there. So he was like, we've got to see what's going on here. He then uh, brought this retired Army Colonel, John Alexander, into the fold, and he joined NIDS. Now, Colonel Alexander had an extensive resume when it comes to uh, UFOs and stuff with the military. I mean, it was like something straight out of the Mm X-Files. This guy knew what the hell he was doing. Yeah. So NIDS put a lid on the reports of sightings and UFO activity and all that once they moved in there. It's like, we ain't keeping all this shit to ourselves. But in 2017, the New York Times story reported that Bigelow was funded up to $22 million by the Department of Defense at at the recommendation of Senator Harry Reid 
in 2007. Mm-hmm. There's Harry's the senator out there in Utah. Yeah. Bigelow eventually shut down NIDS in 2004 and replaced it with Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Studies. So Bigelow's findings during this time was that the UFOs in the area were not consistent with current military aircraft. Oh. In 2016, Skinwalker Ranch was sold to a company of unknown origin called Adamantium Holdings for $4.5 million. This is a ranch that, what, 20 years ago, roughly sold for $200,000. Now it's selling for $4.5 million. Yeah. After they bought it, a public road that goes through the property was closed. And now it's got a guard out there. It's guarded very closely. No way. And Skinwalker Ranch is completely off limits to everyone. To this day? To this day. Wow. Yeah, they just bought it in 2016. Oh my gosh. I'd hate to be the one to have to stand guard out there. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So what do you think about the story in general? I think it's creepy AF. Do you think they're story is credible or do you think i mean i almost don't see how it couldn't be well here was some of the stuff that that confused me now the, everything i said like when she said that she saw the motor home mm-hmm. and she said it was 200 yards i said 200 feet because i've got a feeling that's what it was supposed to be but it, it, 200 yards is what it said and she mm-hmm. saw this seven foot tall alien now think about it a football field is 100 yards mm-hmm. if you had two football fields I think it would be hard, I mean, to see that even far, with yeah. great eyesight, to yeah. be able to look two football fields and tell something seven feet tall, and well, that's true. to be able to see that it was dressed like Darth Vader, I don't know that I could tell no way. I know what I'm was sure. in the window no, 200 I yards be able away. To. So that's the only kind of things that kind of, yeah, but, but that doesn't mean things doesn't didn't happen. It just means I don't know how much I believe in every single Every single story, yeah. I mean, once you say that, then it's like, yeah, that, there's no way that could be true. And then, like I said, the animal mutilations, that stuff is what it is. Right. And then, like I said, I'm sure they saw some other stuff, the uh, orbs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think most of it probably did happen because the military has got a tight lock on that place. Yeah. And So, why would they be doing that? Right. And it's like I said, we could have done probably a whole other episode on just since they've sold the ranch. Yeah. And all the other stuff. So. Ooh. I'm just rather not go there. I thought this would be a good time before we brought on the guys from Graveyard Tales to talk about the animal mutilations here in Kentucky that tie right into that story. Okay, sounds so great. Let's go ahead and uh, do our Patreon supporters for the week Melissa Steele, Phil from Scared, Stephen Simmons, Jeffrey Lasik, I think it's Lapita Amusa. I think it's Amusa. Mm-hmm. She'll tell me if I'm wrong. Christina. Uh, this one's probably going to be wrong, too. Christine Papio. So thank you guys so much for joining us on the uh, Yeah, thank Patreon you all so much. That's amazing. We appreciate you guys. All right, so we've got the live show coming up. You heard it at the beginning with uh, Graveyard Tales, October 20th. $10, Nashville. It's going to be an awesome show. It's going to be super fun. We're going to have EVP Mediums out there doing a live spirit box session. Exciting. So. I can't wait for that. It's going to be cool. Yeah. So let's go ahead and bring uh, Adam and Matt on. and Let's talk a little bit about these animal mutilations in Monroe County, Kentucky. All right. So we were talking, obviously, in this episode about animal mutilations. And it really brought up a story that's happening right in the Kentucky area, but close to the Tennessee border. 
So I thought, who else should we bring on to talk about this other than Adam and Matt from Graveyard Tales? What's going on, guys? Hey. Hey, man. Hey, we're good. Yeah, we, uh, we're we really uh, interested in this. This is in our backyard. Yeah, exactly. It's closer to you guys than it is us. But I thought it worked out perfect considering how close it was to both of us when us having our live event coming up on the 20th of uh, October. Excited about that. And uh, I know we've talked to EVP to meet mediums on the show, and we've talked to you guys already, and then we got you guys back. It's It should be a really fun event. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's jump into this. For people who haven't heard the story, now it has gotten some national attention, so you may have heard this story, but just in case you haven't, here's the deal. The Monroe County Sheriff's Department, as well as, as members of the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife, responded to Bill Butler's Spur area, which is in Monroe County, Kentucky, for reports of dead animals. Upon arrival, they found three horses. Now, these were miniature horses. A pit bull and a husky dead. It's believed that this occurred in the wee hours of the morning, and all signs show that it's possible that it could have been done by a large cat or animal. Members of the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife Diagnostics Team are on their way from Frankfurt to examine these animals. We closely, or, or highly advise that you keep a close eye on your small children and animals when they are outside and use caution and be aware of your surroundings. That's what the Monroe County Sheriff's Department posted on their Facebook page. So that's the start of all this. Have you guys seen the pictures of some of this stuff? Yeah, I've seen a few that uh, kind of have popped up in news feed and everything. And then I was researching it a little bit for our talk. And they're pretty gruesome. They are. They're very gruesome. And it takes a hell of an animal to take down a pit bull to begin with. And sure. Also, those are pretty aggressive animals when they're uh, encountered like that. They're, they're, they will fight back. And uh, this thing obviously stood no chance. So, Tracy, have you, what are your thoughts on, on this whole thing, first of all? And, and here's one, something I want to bring up before we get Tracy's thoughts. These animals were all drugged to the same place. So it was like all the animals were found in one spot, and they didn't all come from the same spot. Oh, that's nasty. So, I didn't know that. So that is one part of it. So, yeah. So what do you think, Tracy, about just the fact that there was five animals that were all in the same spot that were all mutilated? Well, number one, that's scary as crap, um, for sure, and makes me not want to go outside. But um, I don't know. I mean, what kind of cat? I mean, it would have to be, like, a, I would think a mountain lion or something that could, could do that. But we don't have those around here, right? Well, supposedly they do, and there have been some seen. But Adam, oh. Adam and Matt, what the problem is here, and where the controversy comes in, is Kentucky Fish and Wildlife came in, and they said flat up, this was not done by a large predator. That it was too the, the it wouldn't consistent with the jagged teeth marks that you would find on a predator. These were pretty straight uh, incisions. They were um, looked like they were done with a sharp instrument. And plus, the, a predator wouldn't have a drug all these to the same spot and not eat on the body. They would have done some type of feeding off of it, which wasn't the case here. So when it was all said and done, the sheriff's department turned around and said they thought that was bullshit. And that was his exact words. Right. Well, I thought it was it was strange. They, they, they go and they say, well, it's not a wild animal. And then later they say there's no evidence of human interaction. Well, that's what I was thinking. So what's left? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no inter human interaction. It can't be a wild animal. What the hell could have done it? I mean, but why do they think it's not a human interaction? 
Well, because they're not seeing any signs that it would uh, of a human being there, but they're also not seeing any signs right. of an animal being well, sure. there. Sure. So now I did see in one of the pictures that shows the miniature horse that's split open. There uh, does look like there's a paw print right beside it, which I think is what the sheriff is leaning on, thinking that it's a big cat. And I think they did see a mountain lion somewhere in the vicinity that somebody took a picture of, and that's I think that's what he's trying to go by. Yeah, and. You know, cats are known to, after a kill, to drag their prey to a safer spot where it feels safer to eat. So it's not unheard of for a large cat to kill in one place and drag to another area. Uh, But like you said, most of the time there would be some predation on the body. But, you know, it's also, we've all seen the house cats that will kill and not eat it. They just kill to play with it. So it's in feline DNA just to kill. So I wouldn't put it past a, a large cat to do the same. And Jerry, I, I, di- I didn't see, maybe you did. What's the distance that they would have had to have been moved? I didn't see that either. The, where, yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I've seen a miniature horse and, and I've seen a mountain lion. That's, that's a lot of work to, to drag that many animals to one spot when they're you know, they're happening all at once. This, I mean, it's like they're finding them all together. I mean, even, even a big, a big mountain lion, that's a, that's a, that's a lot of work to, to drag miniature horses that far. That's what I was thinking. And then not eat them or anything. I mean, what's the point? And then, so since that happened, that would have been an interesting enough story. But since then, there's been, I think, two more mutilations at different times. One of them was a calf. It was it was found dead and partially skinned at a farm about a mile away from where these other deaths occurred. And then there was another dog, I think, that was found uh, after that on a different day. So it's not only happened those times, but it's happened twice more. And, you know, guys, what we were just talking about on the, on our episode, which is the Skinwalker Ranch, is there was a string back in the 90s, I don't know if you guys remember, of all these animal mutilations throughout the Midwest, there was a couple of documentaries that were actually done on them and thinking that it may be alien experimentation. And yeah. I know there's been a few people already bring that up with this situation, even though it's a little different. But still, like you said, if it's not human and it's not animals, then, right. you know, what kind of... But nobody nobody has an answer to this. Well, yeah, I it, saw... Oh, go ahead, Adam. Oh, I'm just going to say, it does look a little different than the cattle mutilations and everything we saw in the 90s and that still kind of happened now because that despite being a surgical incision like you were saying those kind of focused on a body part and it would remove certain body parts from the cattle but it wasn't just like you know opening it up skinning it and moving it to a certain area they would kind of just leave them where they were so here's what the uh what there was a gentleman who who writes for the paper down there, and I grab, grabbed a lot of stuff off his Facebook page. Here's what he said he's learned about this situation. He said, mountain lions, they tend to kill large prey every week or so. They stalk the animal and attack. Typically, there are puncture wounds on the back of the neck or head where the lion frequently bites the animals. There may also be other puncture injuries to the neck and the jugular areas. They do not chew ears off of carcasses and usually eat the stomach area behind the ribs. Then they'll try to cover the un, the uneaten portion up uh, with leaves and sticks and stuff like that just to try to keep other animals away. 
In case they thought it was a bear, black bears and brown bears are not usually hunters, uh, and it's an unusual circumstance that they could maul a horse or a calf. The damage would be significant and easily identified. Coyotes, there's more, they're, they're more of a, a threat to foals as they're reluctant to attack a full-grown horse except out of desperate um, hunger or um, let alone try to miniature horse. So that's mm-hmm. not something that's in their thing. Bobcats typically focus on smaller prey, attacking something as large as a horse is unlikely. And then you got domestic dogs and humans, and that's the only thing that's really left. So even with the mountain lion, you would think there would be some kind of puncture wounds or something, and that wasn't the case with any of these animals. No, and you know, there were, I guess it was about a year ago, maybe, maybe not quite, there were reports of, of a panther uh, around the Portland, Tennessee area, which is right on the Kentucky border maybe about 30 or 40 miles west of the area that we're talking about. So I can see where it's not unheard of for, you know, a large cat to be in that area. It's unusual. I mean, it, we, we don't usually have, you know, those kind of animals, but I guess it's reasonable. I, I think it's just the, the manner that we're seeing at how the animals were found and how they were attacked. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't all fit together. Well, the law enforcement, one of the other things that they threw out there was a couple of years ago, there was a dog fighting ring. And they don't think it's active anymore, but they said there are some pit bulls from back in, in those days that run free. Um, so that's the only other thing is, is maybe it's a pit bull that's uh, in the area, but it still just seems unlikely just based on what the bodies look like. I mean, there's no puncture wounds or nothing. That's what they said. That's what they're saying. Mm -hmm. That is crazy. Yeah. One of the uh, attacks that I saw was a, it wasn't the pit bull boxer mix. There was another um, bulldog that was attacked and it was in a fenced in enclosure. So whatever it was had to have jumped that fenced in enclosure to get in the top. So, you know, it wouldn't have been a bear because the bear would have just busted through. So it does lie more along the lines of a cat or, you know, something that could get in that enclosure. Um, the dog wasn't killed completely, but the wounds I saw were all over the face and neck area. Yeah, it's these, these are pretty gross, gross gruesome yeah, I, pictures. I don't want to look at them, that's for sure. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on what you think may have happened, Adam? Well, like Matt was saying, it's not unheard of for a large cat to be in the area. Um, I know a couple other theories that I ran across the wilder theories, people were throwing out Chupacabra and Bigfoot. And, you know, we did episode 38, I think was on Chupacabra and none of the wounds that we're seeing in these attacks line up with anything in the supposed Chupacabra attacks. And, We've never had any reported cases of a quote-unquote Bigfoot attack, anything like that. So, you know, I'm leaning more toward what the sheriff's department said, that it's a large animal. But I am leaning toward maybe a, a rogue big cat, and the killings might not be for food necessarily, but, you know, the territory, maybe they're killing to claim their territory. I, I don't know. Do you think it's possible there could be animal serial killers? I mean, and I say that all, all kidding aside, I mean, what if there is this one animal that just likes to kill for fun, whatever? Maybe it's not got a, 
fully developed brain or maybe its instincts are off. I mean, if it happens to people, yeah. you know, maybe there's a possibility that, that this animal just doesn't fit the criteria of, of its species. Like it's a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, rabies will, will do that. It will cause animals to veer from their typical instinct. I know in, uh, in my old neighborhood, we had uh, a red fox that was running around and was seen during the daylight, which is pretty unusual and a good indicator that it was rabid. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's possible, you know, if it, if it was a, you know, a diseased animal that it was doing things that weren't typical, you know, didn't look like hunting, you know, didn't look like, you know, it was trying to uh, capture prey to eat, especially, you know, I'm thinking a large cat wouldn't necessarily, you know, feed on that many animals that frequently. Yeah. Well, let's say you said he really wouldn't feed and he was just, Taking them out there, right. if that was the case. Yeah, so you know it. It makes sense if you if you're thinking on the on the lines of it's an animal that's acting erratically and, and not consistent with its typical behavior. Um, yeah, just maybe killing killing for pleasure or sport. And there are you know in you'd look at just say dog breeds, domesticated dog breeds. Once you breed a genetic line enough that it can develop mental issues you know some breeds are overly anxious some do end up having you know brain development issues so it's possible if in that area there were large cats and there wasn't a large breeding population of cats that they interbred quite a few times and Genetics did create, kind of like Jerry was saying, a serial killer cat, one that doesn't act like it should, and something has snapped in there, and it's just gone on a killing spree. So, Matt, what did you, what do you, what is your synopsis of what you think happened? Do you think it's a big cat? I, I think if if we're looking at a natural explanation, that's the that's probably the most plausible. Um, you know, I was trying to wrap my head around the idea that. Could this be human, a human involved, but staging these animals to look not like a human? But I can't imagine what what kind of what kind of weaponry you would have to use that wouldn't reveal that it was man made. Mm -hmm. You know that it would look like a, a you know an animal attack or or something else, and law enforcement or fish and wildlife wouldn't be able to pick up on, hey, this looks like there was a blade of some type. It was, you know, crudely made or whatever, but it it does look like it was it was a blade that that would indicate some human involvement. So I, I'm kind of on the fence between, you know, those two, either a, a, a large cat or 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 a human that's staging these animals just to, you know, pr produce some headlines or whatever or start up some, hey, they're doing some, some kind of crazy animal sacrifice thing or, you know, get people start talking about alien attacks. Well, you know, originally when this came out, um, the Fish and Wildlife said that it, the animals were shot, which is why the Sheriff's Department actually put the gruesome photos up for the point of saying, do these animals look shot to you? This is not shot. And then they changed it to they didn't think it was an animal because the wounds on it were so smooth that they thought that it was maybe some type of a blade or something. But then they ruled out the, the human interaction. So 
you know, it's it's kind of crazy. Um, Tracy, what's your thoughts? What do you think it was? I still think it was a human. And I think that the sheriffs didn't want to say that because it would really scare people, maybe. I don't know. I think it had to be a human. Well, I don't think they went out of their way to not scare people. They flat up well, said, keep, keep your kids and animals Well, and stuff. I mean, I get it. But I, I think they think maybe people may look at it different if it was like a human. Yeah. Did it. That's I, what I'm saying. I agree. I agree with Tracy. Thank you. I'd be more scared that a human would do this than an animal. Right. And that's what I was kind of thinking. I lean towards. I lean towards a big cat only because the one picture of the horse there did look like there was a big paw print there, beside it. Uh, none of the rest of it makes sense, but that's the only thing I really got to hang my hat on. Uh, I really. I, I definitely don't want to lean towards something paranormal, even though some people are trying to go that way. I just, I just think it's, um, it'll come out eventually that it's some kind of animal. They'll find something. Yeah, and as the, you know, you got to look at everything skeptically, and the whole Occam's razor thing, the, you know, alien or extraterrestrial involvement is not necessarily the simplest, and, you know, it it's probably the most fantastical, but it it doesn't. It doesn't ring true for the wounds or anything that, you know, you've seen at Skinwalker Ranch or anything like that that is claimed to also be extraterrestrial. So, Matt, the red fox that used to run around your neighborhood, did it have a running mate named Lamont? I'm just curious. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) It It was Julio. Julio. <laughs> was, it, was it possible that it wasn't rabid and it was just cussing all the time because that's what it did? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Guys, we appreciate you coming on. I know y'all got a busy schedule, um, but it was fun having you on. A month away, Nashville. It's going to be us, you guys, EVP Mediums, Macabre Melt. Ten bucks gets you in the show at Hell Nashville. Look, you guys have been there. I've not physically been there. Tell everybody what Hell Nashville is like on the inside. Well, it reminds me of my house. No, um, it, <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> when, when you go in, you know, you're, you see everywhere they've got taxidermy. They've got, you know, clean skulls and skeletons, but they've also got the esoterica in there. You can buy a Ouija board if you're so inclined. Um, they've got a lot of literature on witchcraft and you know wizardry and all kind i mean they've got everything they just recently bought um a supply of stuff from an old mortuary so you can buy mortuary tool tools or coffins it's just a one of those shops that if it's weird they kind of stock it yeah so you can uh come to the show and go home with a new coffin for your living room absolutely (laughs) Do they have any like interactive things like a huge board that you can lay on somebody and lay stones on it so you can get that whole Salem witchcraft experience or <laughs> we we could probably set one up. <laughs> hey, I, I tell you what, me, medieval torture kind of stuff, that's it's right up their alley too. I, I can't say that I, I've seen that there, but uh but yeah, that that would be right in line with something they would have too. Well we got a chance to uh find out the other day because you you guys had some listeners that were wanting to bring a 10 year old uh we've got somebody i know that's bringing a uh an infant so oh, nice. it's a good time to bring up that this is an all-ages show I'm absolutely sure. uh yeah. 
Ashley is bringing her seven-year-old son, so there will be some kids there if you're, you know, wanting to come and can't leave your kid, you know, seven-year-old and don't want to leave your seven-year-old at home alone, go ahead and bring them, you know. Yeah, it'll be fun. We've got uh, free uh, pentagram and 666 face painting for the kids. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we've got, uh, they're giving out free copies of the book, My First Ouija Board. It's going to be fun. It, it really is going to be an event for the kiddies. <laughs> Remember, you have to be 21 to drink, but only eight to summon demons. So, yes. That's right. Or lemons, depending on how bad your cursor of handwriting is. I think they've got that book there, uh, Everybody Spooks. So, <laughs> Guys, thank you for coming on, man. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, Thanks, we appreciate man. it. Bye, guys. Bye. Them guys are so much fun. I love uh, just talking to them whenever we can, so I can't wait to do that show in Nashville. Yeah, I know. I can't wait either. It's going to be great. So we've got, we're have got we going to end the show tonight with uh, the interview with Steve Asher. He's got his new book out, Hauntings of the Western Kentucky Lunatic Asylum. And I uh, want to go ahead and cover our iTunes reviews real quick before we get into that. So we got KH29825. T. Garam, I think that's T. Graham. I said it wrong. I you sure it. did. <laughs> sexy like a peanut. By the way, sexy like a peanut also bought a shower curtain and a hoodie. Oh, dude, thank you thank so you. much. Uh, B. Mama Wallace. What's that gaming unicycle style? Yeah. All right then. Laherne five five seven seven. E. A. P. zero one ninety. M. R. C. P. F. I. 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 Heather Lee Murray, Steampunk Cavalier. Jade Rios 21, Ellen Nicole Smith, Texas Two Loves, Damian Blue, Cleve Fan 55, Bigfoot 2047, Sam Law 0916, and Katie Q. Thank you that guys. That was a bunch. It was. It was a boatload. 18. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you guys so much. If we- you guys leave reviews, if you'll put your real name at the end, in most cases we'll say your real name rather than what, you know, because I don't know how much... You know, KH29825 gets excited when they hear the, mm-hmm. their letters mentioned. But yeah. if you just put it at the end of the review, hey, it's Karen or Linda or whatever, right. we'll say that instead. We appreciate you all taking the time out to do that. It's amazing. Thank you so much. All right. So let's listen to uh, Steve Asher real quick. Hey, guys, we got a friend of the show that hasn't been on for a little while, and, and uh, we thought it was time to get him back. Of course, we're talking about no other than Steve Asher. He uh, wrote The Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary, and we had him on talking about that, and he came back on to talk about uh, uh, some of the houses uh, in old Louisville when we did that show, and now he has a new book out. I don't know the name of it because he hasn't sent me a free copy, so uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's Hauntings of the Western Lunatic Asylum, and we touched on that, Steve, the last time you were on the show because it hadn't yet been released, and uh, I thought it'd be pretty cool to come on and, and talk a little bit about that and, and some other stuff you got going on. So welcome back to the show. Hey, hey guys. I, I'm pleased as punch to be here. I appreciate you having me back on and, and supporting just a just a simple little uh, uh, farm mouse like myself, you know. I, uh, I've been very lucky that folks like yourselves have, um, for whatever reason, to, uh, decided to take a mud in and uh, try to give them, give them a chance at uh, getting out there and having, having some exposure. And I'm, I'm in your debt. Well, no, you're active in, in our Facebook page and group, and a lot of the listeners out there have, have bought your books, and they're excited about the new stuff you got going on. Uh, and we'll touch on the the, uh, the newer books 
that that you've got out and coming out. But first, I want to talk about House of Asher. So, in the meantime, from when you first came on the show, you've you've had a lot going on, and this is one of the projects that you started up. It's a, a YouTube channel that you discuss a little bit of of everything macabre. And uh, tell me a little bit about that, as far as why you decided to start it and what it's developed into since the day you did start it. Well, more or less, it was um, kind of started out as almost like a video video blog, I guess. I mean, you know, um, and it was more of just touching on this and that. It kind of ducktailed off of like my metal and punk music page. And as I started doing this, I would kind of get on there and go, hey, guys, you know, I'm working on X amount of chapters and, you know, whatever, and, and touching base and tr- start get, trying to get a little bit of a ground a groundswell, a little bit of a buzz going. And, and then, when, then when I went into actually trying to do a a legitimate show house of asher which again i i was real hesitant to calling it that just to do the fact it's just you know hey it's the stevie show look at me i it's stevie it's all about stevie and i didn't want to do that but um it tied in with all the growing up watching the spook b movies and and all the creature features and chiller stuff on you know saturday matinees and that was very much my childhood i was i was very much raised by media uh good you know for the for the good or the bad of it and um but yeah, yeah. So basically, I started doing like little quirky little things, ten or fifteen minute subjects. Like, okay, what if the Jawas were the little people that were in the Phantasm movie? Okay, they're obviously from some other planet. They're obviously walking around in those little jacked up monk robes. They you, they talk, you can't understand them. You, you never you never really see the faces of the Jawas, but you, you know maybe there's some connection. Maybe it's they stole some of those Jawas and put them to work for the Tall Man. You know, goofy kind of fun speculation and uh but yeah obviously due to all my researching and things like that i did have things that i want to talk about and that's when it started to morph it started you know started going into 35 45 minutes now i do you know like a try to do four hour shows <laughs> and uh, you know eventually eventually i might do something else, you know like a two or three hour thing but it's just a lot of times i realize folks have a limited amount of time and so I'm thinking, look, pal, getting there for an hour, it's relatively quick and painless, and they bounce back and forth. I bounce back and forth, and it's like, oh, hey, man, we're almost done. Do you want to mention your website? And I'm like, oh, wow. So um, it doesn't feel like they're on the clock with like, okay, boom, 12 minutes, so we got to take a quick break. So, But I've been lucky enough to pull in guys like we had mentioned, uh, some of your local guys like, like uh, David Dominey. Uh, um, Mr. Uh, uh, Ronald Moorhead. I uh, actually had had Diane Franklin. There's a new movie coming out, and I man, I want everybody to watch it. I have to pluck it because I'm very proud of the the lady and the work because I've seen like some advanced stuff and trailers. And it's the uh, Amityville Murders, and it has Diane Franklin, who had played in the second Amityville horror movie, who played the younger sister that kind of got you know seduced and got in a really weird situation. And but she plays. Mrs. DeFalco, like the original family who came to a grisly end in the Amityville house. And it looks really good, and it's a period piece, and it looks like – I mean it looks right. It doesn't look like you're trying to take you know, uh, somebody and put them in like nine, you know, 1990s clothes, and they're trying to they're, – you know, they're dialing it in. This looks right. It, cam, you know, the, the tonality, if that's a, if that's a term, the, the flow of it, the, the, the look of it, the, the, all the camera work, it, it looks legit. You know, and um, so I'm very proud of that. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I've been able to do. I'm lucky enough to get people from different type of media and different type of writers 
that I'm interested in and then different sort of entertainers and different sort of, you know, I'm, I'm in the processes of having a, a doctor, <clears throat> a doctor on about sleep paralysis. I'm lining up some stuff about near death experiences. Uh, um, you know, more or less I'm tying in all my horror angles, movie angles, and it's definitely got a strong foot in the, the old art bell style, you know, just the, Talking with the people and having quirky guys. I'm not sorry, I'm not going to say I'm going to have a you know a psychic on every five minutes or this and that, but you know just that sit there and talk back and forth thing where it's not it doesn't feel like you're interviewed. You know I don't want to. If you have an event that happens, I want to know more about. Okay, how did that affect you? Um, what was the fallout? I mean the event is wonderful, but there's something that leads up to everything, and there's a a fallout from everything. And to me, I think that shows the metal of the people and it shows the humanity of the situation because anybody can kind of, well, I don't say anybody. Yeah. I obviously have to have skill to do, to do this type of thing, but, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn it, but it's the thing where I much rather show the human face of a situation instead of just sort of having like news bites with it. You know what I mean? I want to so, ask, right ask your opinion on something. Now, this isn't something that you even are aware that I was going to ask, but you're a musician, and we've got a friend of ours. (laughs) we got a friend of ours up in E-Town, and this might even be something you're interested in if time permits because it's a little closer to you. But in E-Town on October 25th, it's called Resurrection of the Bands, and we've actually signed on as a sponsor. I've, I've known this gentleman for a while. He's a musician, goes way back. But what he wants to do with this um, event is he's going to have some paranormal investigators down there with an ovulus, and he's going to have three local bands, and each one of those bands are going to perform three songs of an artist who's passed away. He has not got it completely worked out as to which bands and which artists it's going to be yet, but let's just say hypothetically, uh, I know he's talking about the possibility of Johnny Cash being one of them. So let's say you got Johnny Cash, so one band plays three songs by him, then afterwards, there's a 20 to 40 minute paranormal session where they're going to be out there listening for EVPs and uh, working the ovulus, the spirit boxes, and trying to see if playing that artist's music is something that would generate enough um, spiritual, I guess, connectivity to that artist to maybe get them to come through. And they're going to do that three separate times that night with three separate artists. What are your thoughts on something like that as a musician? <clears throat> now are you speak, are you speaking in like the, the validity of like, do I think playing notes that a person had more or less lived night and day bled for, uh, having a resonance to them and can possibly draw them in. I, sure. Why not? Um, I don't think there's a problem with it. I don't see anything, um, overtly witchy about it which i mean i I myself don't have a big problem with witchy but um but i I do think that i think it would be entertaining you know what's wrong with seeing seeing uh, some bands playing some some classic music i think it's kind of a kind of a groovy idea i you know um i think a lot of times you know i know myself we've investigated i have to be careful because this is uh this has not been released and it's one of these deals it was kind of like a private investigation so i can't say the name of the place but we investigated a uh, museum local to us and they have like a they have a grand piano i'm sorry i've, I've got some dogs losing their minds in the other room um they had a grand piano and they had played one of the um the mistress the the you know the woman of the house's favorite musical piece and also played some old cylinder phonographs you know with the old wax cylinders and it's got mm-hmm. that sound to it and it was really kind of creepy and haunting coming through that big horn 
And um, we did pick up, you know, we didn't we didn't have the device you talked about, but we did pick up some EVPs of asking uh, things like, you know, where's where's Papa John, and you know, where's the doctor? We need the doctor. Which one of the people who lived there had died of consumption? They were uh, or had been taking medicine for that, and and later and had passed away. So I do think that. Just like – okay, let me make a comparison in a long roundabout way of answering you, and I apologize. Um, there was actually a video on YouTube where it had a, an old flapper, a lady that was, had been a flapper back in the 20s, and she had had, uh, I think, Alzheimer's or something. They started playing this music and playing this video, and it kind of drew her out of her thing, and she's sitting there, and she's nodding and kind of snapping her fingers, and she was, she was grooving, and she was with it. And and she was she stayed kind of out of it for a while, and eventually you know, the music stopped. She kind of went back to herself, but I definitely think that – if there's any sort of intelligence there, that it's going to bump it up, or even if it's a kind of a looping type thing, maybe that in itself is enough to trigger it. As maybe that was part of the soundtrack of the loop. I don't see why not. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a pretty interesting idea. I'm surprised more people haven't done that before. I think that, um, and especially you have somebody, because I'm thinking of stuff like cry, 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 and and you know things like that. If you have um, Things, especially like country performers. I mean, I definitely think you could play like uh, some old ACDC or some Dio and stuff like that. You might, you might have a response. But I think, especially in this area, due to, due to the fact that you know it, it is it is the South, that especially if you have something that's a little bit more homespun, especially if it's a person who's pr- that was pretty earnest, and they lived their music. I, I yeah, I think that would be a pretty high likelihood that you might get a uh, some sort of reaction. Sure, why not? So let's move on to the uh, the next subject. You, you were on before. You talked about Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary, which is a fantastic book. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners have already gotten it. Tell me a little bit about Hauntings of the Western Lunatic Asylum. Well, you know, you know, and, and what's so funny is, and, I, and I'll just a real quick preface. I swear I won't go on too long. Like w- the thing that about the Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary that was. That was really baby's first steps. Um, I'm not a, a, a writer by vo- you know by vocation or definitely by education. I've worked in steel and you know the, the law enforcement, and I've worked in radio, and I did all this and that. Um, writing was not my forte at all, and so that you know that I'm, I'm it really kind of touches me that people enjoy the book because I really I really did try. I really did try to to make it sound sound good and as right as I could and. And uh, like I said, it was a learning experience. Um, the thing about the Hauntings of the Western Lunatic Asylum, which the, the location is still active, and it's in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. It's known as the Western State Hospital these days. But back in those days, it was our region's mental facility, TB hospital, and kind of all that in one. It's, it was more or less uh, like Western Waverly. And so every time someone's going, which Waverly's groovy, Waverly's neat, but I'm like – you know, like th- there's a place like right here, you know, and no one, no one understands it because it's not spotlighted. And also it's not really open for tours because trust me, I tried to get in there. Um, but the thing about the, the, uh, that particular book is just like the penitentiary, it is still an active facility. It come online, I believe. And I don't have the paperwork in front of me. I think it's 1854. It was definitely in the 1850s, I believe. And so it's actually a little older than the penitentiary that come online and think Christmas Eve of 1889. Um, the book touches on um, a lot of stuff that happens not just physically on the grounds because 
there was other parts as as time went on, the penitentiary's grounds grew. And they had had like a county poorhouse, which had a lot of orphans and things like that, and and different things like old mines that collapsed, you know, very close to there. So it's it all sort of ties in. And I always want to put elements of history and elements of folklore and things like that. You know, just like in the first book, you know, I had a story about a, a hellhound or a dog man. It depends on what, what you think what is what is. Um, and I always try to tie in like little elements of some a cryptid story here and there you know like in the third book there's there's a similar story uh, about a about a bigfoot in uh, morganville kentucky but the thing that i that i feel differentiates the uh the western lunatic asylum book is it to be honest it was hard for me to write and people go oh well did you have a a writer's block i'm like no i'm not i've never i've been very blessed even when i played music i could say i could sit there and, and crank out riffs and I'm not saying that I didn't fill them, but I just had a that I don't have many gifts, but that was one of them that I could piece together things and make a melody. I've been very lucky on that. And um, similarly with writing, because you know it kind of takes the basic story and change elements of it, obviously to protect the people's you know privacy and and it just kind of fell together. But the thing with the second book is that a lot of this dealt with folks that were mentally ill or impaired in some way you know sometimes all they're basically they're only um i don't say they're crimes because i mean in a way they were housed there especially in the early days kind of almost like inmates you know very very uh bad situations very bad uh, conditions and um it was a lot of these folks would pour in say from the county poorhouse because sometimes you know you're locked up into a in an a facility for X amount of years, you become institutionalized, especially if there are children involved and if they're not, you know, given out through adoption or whatever, and the parents die or whatever, they go into the or they, they would go into Western State. And so you would have people whose only only sin was that they were born poor uh, and or delayed of some form or maybe have some sort of physical abnormality. You know how it was kind of in the day, you know, um, somebody with a hump back or something like that. They're either going to stay in the back room or maybe go to the circus or they're going to be a grave digger or something. They're not They're not going to be mayor. They're, they're not going to be the uh, quarterback football team. That's just how it was. And especially in that time, it was a lot, a lot more brutal. And it, it was hard for me, um, the fact that, you know, we, we um, do a lot with special needs children, special needs adults. It was just – it was really close to home. And whereas the first book, I think we talked a little bit about it. I was writing that right smack in the middle of losing losing our son Joseph, and that kind of gave me a focus. I know that sounds maybe crazy, but I, you know I'm sure a lot of people fall into their work, or somebody loses a kid, they either fall into their work, they fall into somebody's bed, or they fall into a bottle, or they fall into a, a freaking gun or something. Sometimes people go really dark, and my outlet, my 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 rod to hold on to, obviously, other than my, my wife and my family, was pouring my my time and energy into that book. The second book was different. You know, it was uh, about a year and a half or so after that, and it just welled up memories of you know seeing our you know our son in, in an orphanage and stuff, which was a wonderful place, and they were great people. But it was it would just be just like um, pet cemetery. Say, God forbid, you lost a child to an auto accident. You might really like to film, but that that part kills you. It's heart wrenching. It's like that. Um, it's a very mel- it's a melancholy book for me, and I think, or well, at least from the people that have have read it so far, 
they can feel that. They can feel they can feel the, some of the tension in the writing. They said it makes it makes it for for a good read, but it's one of those deals they can definitely tell that I kind of write. You know, what's the thing you were saying? You have your your heart on your sleeve. I definitely have my heart on my pen or heart on my my fingers when I'm when I'm writing, and you know sometimes it comes off. You know, sometimes it comes off kind of sad, and and but it's definitely. I mean, it's definitely spooky. I mean, and it's definitely. There were some very dark things in the penitentiary. There was horrific stuff that happened inside of there, allegedly. Um, you know, some of these things that I have gotten that were things that were kind of supposedly swept under the rug. Um, I had even heard not that long ago they were digging some pipes and found some type of bones. They speculated if it was human bones, if somebody was trying to escape through a pipe system, then somebody wondered if somebody, you know, dumped a body at the pipe system. Who knows? Uh, I never heard anything else about it, and my source that was giving me any information kind of dummied up. I don't know if what happened. I'm not making a, any sort of conspiracy thing. I'm just that's just the facts. The the my information on on that particular story ran out, and they really couldn't talk about it anymore because they, apparently it had a supposedly had sort of a set down, and this is not spoken of, or you'll be in trouble. And again, I can't confirm that. I'm just telling you what I was told. So it's uh. It's a really trippy place, just like the penitentiary. But again, most people expect – it's like, okay, yeah, you, you went and shot up a family. You bludgeoned an old grandma with a hammer. Yeah, man, that's fine. If you get stuck there walking around for eternity, good on you. That's what you get. you know. And, um, but someone you know, that's mentally, um, mentally challenged, and not to say that there weren't criminally insane people in there because there definitely were. But more, more often than not, it was just – people in horrific circumstances and they blended in with what was going on inside of there. So, you know, that's for me, that's what makes it different. It's, um, it's, it's just, it just doesn't necessarily touch on a, on like what you would think of a, you know, walk down the hall, knock on the door. Who there's a ghost. There's a cold spot. There's a lot more of the human element of the stories there. And I think that you have a strange give and take with it. It's almost sort of a, uh, not comparing myself to somebody like, say, Anne Rice or Stephen King, but where even sometimes the villains you see, you know what I'm saying? You sort of see the uh, you see the scars that led them, that twisted them into becoming what they are in it. Right. So it's got much more much more story involved instead of just jump scares and whatnot, which is you know what I'm trying to do with with my next books as well. You know, I want to definitely make it very tangible. I want you to really feel like you're in it. And really know the history of it and bring things that even places that maybe people know about a little bit. There's elements obviously that they're just not – they just don't know about that I'm bringing into my books, which is so great because you know I've had folks that did history books and, and people that are historians in areas. And it's like you know I never knew about this and that or I've – I heard um, just a little speck of something, but people would never get into it. And I'm very lucky to be able to talk to people and they feel scared. You know, safe to open up because I'm not trying to. I'm, I mean, and I say that I'm not trying to say it like because uh, it probably sounds two faced, but obviously I'm trying to sell some books. Obviously, I'm trying to get my name out as a writer and as, you know, a, an, an artist and musician and, you know, trying to write screenplays and whatnot. But it's, I don't want to do it at the expense of the people's stories. I don't want to trivialize their events, and nor do I want to make it. Over some, make it something that's not and bring it down less than what it truly is. You know, I try to get as, as straight into there as I can. So hopefully, hopefully, uh, hopefully I've done that. 
I like the fact that the the two books that you put out both deal with uh, places in the state of Kentucky because obviously it's the home state, so that's kind of a a good feeling anytime you can see people focusing on the state. And I know we talked uh, back when we were actually on our trip to New Orleans. I talked to you briefly, and I know you're working on some stuff that instead of being situated just in one place like these two books, I know you're working on uh, a collection of stories from all over the state, correct? Yes, yes. Um, I'm actually working on – it's going to be a two-parter or a two – I guess a two-volume. See, like I said, I'm still new to this, so I'll just go, yeah, it's a two-parter, like I'm doing a, like I'm doing a mini-series. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's going to be – I'm breaking each county uh, – breaking the counties up. There's a, currently 120 counties. And I'm going to put 60 counties per book. And, you know, these are going to be, you know, X amount of chapters, you know, 60 chapters a, a book. And it'll take little oddball stories, oddball legends, things, you know, that they talk about, like, you know, different counties. Like, you know, I'm kind of in the, you know, getting into the A's, B's, C's right now. And I want, what I want to do is I want to do it alphabetically so it bounces around. So you might look at a book and go, well, I'm from Eastern Kentucky. I don't want to just read one about over here out west, or I don't want to read one necessarily about Cincinnati or, or Louisville, you know, that area. But when it bounces all over, each book bounces around different areas. So everybody can kind of go, oh, well, yeah, 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 I know somebody from there. I've got an aunt from there. That's cool. So – and um, it's been pretty pretty interesting. I didn't realize all the quirky stuff that's that's happened and that's, that's available in, in Kentucky and that's been part of our history, you know, especially a lot of cryptids. I never realized the amount of cryptid stories – I mean, I literally, I literally could write a book just about Bigfoot because it seemed like two thirds of the counties have have a Bigfoot story. I mean, there are more that's got, are, are less that have dogmen and you know reptilian type creatures and the um, what do you call it? Like the I don't want to say like a, a goblin or a gargoyle stuff, but you know like a wing pterodactyl type creature supposedly, and there's all kinds of stuff. But you know, I wanted to touch on some of the history of of some of the counties because they've found like large uh, like giant's bones you know actual um, um handmade sarcophagi you know and and ossuary's bone uh bone rooms where they had found these uh these bones in like the late 1800s early 1900s and i had actually spoke to and, and if you haven't had this lady on as a guest i totally recommend her she's very very uh very entertaining uh and Knows her stuff. Um, Dr. Heather Lynn, she uh, actually has has a book coming out that touches on – and I'm, I'm not trying to plug her book on your thing, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, it touches on like paranormal aspects of, of – uh, that, that, that ties in with archaeology and a lot of the, the symbolism and you know why they use certain type of symbolisms on, on – on, um, what am I looking at? What I'm trying to say? Uh, on, on like death jars and you know, like, like you, you'd have the different type of uh, – totems you know on, on like jars of organs and egyptian tombs but they also did things similar to that in america and you know and it's kind of like okay well how is that possible so it kind of jumps across okay well some maybe some of our history is wrong maybe our timelines are wrong and you know she's kind of kind of a renegade so i i love that kind of stuff so and there's elements of that in my in those books as well so i'm trying i you know i don't want to be that guy that's like I said, just sitting in the corner with a with a, with a with a cape and vampire teeth, and and that's that's my shtick. I don't want to be a, a shtick guy. I want to kind of be all over. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love some shtick. I'm a fan of shtick, but I want there to be more going on. Just because maybe maybe you don't like that. Maybe you're more into shadow people. Maybe you're more into um, 
pan-dimensional things. Maybe you're into fairies and things like that. Now, they actually got uh, a story that touches on something that would probably be classified as a fairy, but not like a Tinkerbell fairy. Right. Old, old stuff. They were kind of – they were pretty gruff, and they would mess you up, So, um, which I found incredibly interesting because I would have never thought. But a lot of the people that come – that were that settled, especially in Appalachian areas, and moved in further to Central. I mean, some of them got as far as West Kentucky. Otherwise, my, I wouldn't be here because of my mom. But brought a lot of that that Welsh and Irish folklore and banshees and stuff. God, man, who knew? <laughs> you know, and and I love the. I mean, I'm excited talking about it because for me, it's like, oh, look what I found. And then it's like you introduce a friend who check this out, and they go, what? No way. I'm like, right. And you're like <laughs> you got that thing, and it, and you get charged up, and because there's nothing worse than just pouring over reams of boring crap. I hate that. I don't have. I, I don't want to do that. You know, if I want to do that, I'll, I'll be a uh, census taker working the DMV or something. There's nothing wrong with the DMV. I'm just saying. But um, you know, I gotta have. I gotta have that energy, man. I gotta. I gotta have something that draws me in, and that's that's something the paranormal has always done, and which you know, archaeology and. Anthropology and all the ologies. I'm an ology fan. Well, let me ask you this: on on the book with the the counties, when you get to the bigger counties with the with the real big stories like Jefferson County with Louisville, are you going to try to stay away from the big stories? I mean, obviously you got the Waverleys and uh, the things like. Are you going to try to st- stick with a little lesser known stories? Pretty much what I do is I try to I, I will mention some of these landmarks because. That's sort of like their, their, their diamonds, okay, and that's and that's neat. But there's also some some really cool little gold nuggets over here too, and most of them are pristine. Very few people know about them because they're so overshadowed. But because they're so overshadowed, they're not they're not investigated to death. And you go somewhere and you might really get some interesting activity there. And that's something you will find. Okay, paranormal investigators are a lot like old gold guys that go fishing. You know, they'll tell you about a fish, really, really good fishing hole, but they probably won't show you where it's at. Um, a lot of people are, are kind of uh, guarded of their favorite haunts. I don't know why that is true, but it's it's true. Uh, I think part of it is that they don't know how everyone's going to treat the place, you know, and also they know if you go in there and you spoil it and you act a fool, the people who probably own it will not let people come back again. So there's a certain uh, you have a certain curator quality to places you check out as you should. Um, but I definitely, yeah, I definitely probably won't do anything about Waverly. Not that it's not in- interesting. I actually have, uh, uh, my friend Kevin, uh, who had actually connected us, uh, Kevin Cummins, um, hey Kev, uh, had been at Waverly and I was actually was going to go with him and it was just, I couldn't, I couldn't get off work man. really wanted to do it. I just couldn't get off work. Yeah. He went, um, on, he went on tour with us that night. I know. Right. And it was a thing just like, man, there's no way the, the logistics of me finishing up here. We had different things going on. And I said, I, I, one day I will, one day I will. And if I actually get to go and I can maybe have some experiences that are really, really amazing. And I can get like some stories that no one's heard or maybe like, Oh, well, did you know Waverly blah, blah, blah is connected to whatever and come to find out it's on such and such ley line or it's, Something. It's got. It's gonna have to be something pretty big for me to devote a book to it. I'm not saying I wouldn't consider doing, you know, a chapter two, but I don't want to do that because, like you said, a lot of people have covered it because it's interesting. But I, I like bringing the obscure. I like bringing, you know, if I take you to my city, 
I'm not going to take you to uh, – good lord. All right. I'm not going to take you to a regular pizza shop. I'm going to take you like – no, no. This is – there's this grandma and grandpa. They've been running the same place. You know, they, They've been using the same you know, uh, charcoal oven for you know, 50 years. You got it. You, you know, I want to bring you that which you're not going to find anywhere else. And because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to share that with your friends? And that's why I try to treat my readers. I know it sounds, well, you know, everybody's my friend. I'm not saying it like that, but, you know, I've made friends with my readers that I've met. Uh, I've met, I've met very few that were kind of play mystery for me. Most of them are very earnest people. Um, and still keep in touch with them. You know, I also get, Hey, you know, how, how, how's the new books coming and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'll see somebody have, you know, like you're talking about the grandkid and, you know, us having a grandbaby. And, and I was like, hey, you know, I'll see that, you know, I just had a kid. You know, I mean, I stay connected. I'm, I'm very socially uh, active, and, you know, or social media, media, media active. So I've been, it's strange because when you start making friends with folks, you start feeling like you're a part of a community, which I never expected to be a part of. I, again, I never, I never planned on being a writer. And uh, so I'm very blessed in that. But that's the thing. That's the sort of thing I think about, especially writing books in Kentucky, because I'm like, I don't, I don't want to dial it in. I don't want it to be like a, like a little travelogue. I don't want it to be, you know. There's a lot of really cool places, and a lot of people went to like, you know, uh, like uh, Bobby Mackey's, and a lot of people have went to um, different places like that, and those are extremely cool. But I want you to go. Oh, but did you hear about the? The Jefferson Mine, or did you hear about the this and that, or the you know the the Lost Dutchman of Kentucky, or the this and that, right? I, I want to bring something to go. There's no man. How, how did I live here my entire life and not know this? And that's what we try to do with our little hillbilly shorts that we do for the Patreon episodes. Is all of those are little stories that's just like most people have never heard of, and it, but that makes it fun for us to do. And most of them are only you know eight or ten minutes worth of information anyway, so you really couldn't do a whole show with them. But they're perfect for little tidbits for every day. Oh, I mean, you know, and that's the thing. I initially I had everybody going, Steve, what, what, what's, what are you doing? Eight or ten minutes? I said, that's all I wanted to talk, which is amazing because you, you know, obviously you can't shut me up. Yeah, I started to say I would, like, I would never you know, believe that's all you wanted to talk. Well, <laughs> well, it's a thing that, um, you know, sometimes I mean, and obviously, especially when the videos, you know. You can see like just the, the remnants of sunlight coming in. I'm getting ready for work. I'm getting ready to have to you know get my get my son his, his bottles and all this stuff, get him ready. And I'm jumping there, hey, everybody. Oh, yeah, I was going to tell you the story I heard. And like a five or ten minute before work, just getting in from work, you know, I'm still, you know, I've been out like helping mow or do something. So I've got leaves, you know, for sure. You know, I'm, I'm a real blue collar guy. But and I was like, well, I guess if I'm going to make it a little bit longer, I'll kind of make it a little bit more like a real show. I mean, I don't want to – I just don't – I just don't see me – going full-blown and that's the kiss of death i'm never going to say never but i don't see me going like full-blown three four-hour media extravaganza mainly just because unless there's definitely some money behind it where i can devote more time as opposed to you know the work that i'm doing now and here and there and running i can definitely kind of justify it then right now this is just this is just for uh giggles and for my own my own curiosity and so you know like i say we'll see what happens and i mean if you look at a lot of the new shows you know i've touched man I'll, i've touched on everything from um um people who uh collect art and and pieces uh from locations of people like been serial killers i've had people that you know uh you know i'm talking to people who feel they talk to talk to angels and i've had angel encounters and stuff it's 
it's I sort of want to do like a radio version of the old in search of show where I can bounce all over and it can have dark elements and it can also have bright elements and it can also have humorous elements. And, um, and that's where it's at. I mean, if it becomes something grander than that, cool. If it, uh, if it stays just like it is, I'm happy with that. You know, I, I do pre-recording, um, I, for two reasons, I think it just takes a lot of pressure off people. You know, I've had a lot of folks, they're like, well, you know, I, you know, I've got this thing going on. I said, look, you know, because I've like, look, 45 minutes at, you know, if, if that's all you can give me, 45 minutes, you give me 30 minutes, it's fine. And it's pre recorded. You know, if you sneeze or fart or let a wordy dirt slip out, you know, we'll stop it and, you know, we'll edit that out. It's okay, you know, and it takes that whole, you can just kind of hear and go, you know, I mean, I know, I know everybody loves radio. I like, uh, you know, live radio. I love that too. But for me, this works. No, oh, yeah, I, I I couldn't imagine trying to do this live, except we do our live events. And it's funny because we actually, I don't know if it's a mental thing, but we very seldom screw up on the live events. And we do the same story that we're going to do the next night. We just do it early. But, I mean, we stop so many times because we flub lines when we're recording the show. But when we're at the live events, it seems like we never do. I don't know if it's just because you are just more focused or, you know, not sure. But it's funny how it works. <laughs> I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what – this is what I think it is because I've done the same thing. Um, it's different now because I've gotten used to – because of so much music when I do – like we record albums and I would do overdubs, I would do it. I would sit in my little my little building or whatever, and I would sit there and, and just overdub it, and I'd sit and I'd play parts, and I'd sing parts, isolated parts. I got used to – that in studio because there's i've seen a lot of really solid bands who are just killer on stage lots of energy you put them in that room it's just like you suck the life out of them they don't know how to act they don't they don't they don't know the timing and behavior of a studio but the thing about that you're talking about flubbing it up i've seen guys with really bad sinus infections uh really bad like stomach ulcers they've been hurting all day and they, you know, they're hearing the people out there, and they're getting ready, and they start kind of antsy and kind of pacing around. They're getting pumped up. You can see their cheeks getting flushed. They're getting ready. They're getting the head nod. They're getting ready to rock, and they hit the stage. Hello, Cleveland, and they go, and they, they they're explosive. You can tell anything's wrong. Then they come off, and, and you know, within about forty five minutes, they're back to being sick as a dog. There's a there's a performer um, gene or performer thing, and it really it's it's true. Um, you know, just like, you know, actresses and, and vaudevillian people, you know, you got to be on. You've got to be able to jump into that character and, you know, how are you and entertain the kids. And then you can go back and, you know, when, in the mellow times and you can get sick. Steve, it's been super fun having you on. The uh, the YouTube show is House of Asher. You've got uh, the books out, Hauntings of, the Kentucky, Hauntings of the Kentucky State Penitentiary and Hauntings of the Western Lunatic Asylum. Both of those are on Amazon and I'm sure they're in some bookstores and stuff as well. And uh, tell everybody sure, how Simon, they can get in touch with you. I'm sorry. I said tell everybody how they can get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you or, or find out more about you and your books and other projects. Oh lordy, yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick, uh, the House of Asher uh, podcast uh, at the moment is carried through uh, Conflict Radio on, on uh, YouTube. They're carrying me on that. Uh, just gets more people out. You can contact me. This is all lowercase together. Steve E Asher dot com, and uh, I've got pages on Twitter. I got pages on YouTube. I got pages on Instagram, uh, and my email is I L A S H 
E-R-S at yahoo.com. That's eyelashers at yahoo.com. And that's directly to me. So give me a yell. Awesome, brother. We'll talk to you soon. I'll be hearing from you as soon as this new book drops. Right on, man. You guys keep keeping on, and I love the show, and I'll be listening. Man, it's been a while since we've done almost a two-hour show, but I there know. we go. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We sure enjoyed doing it for you all. Yeah, it's going to be uh, probably a while before we do another two-hour show. <laughs> 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 but we got so much fun stuff coming up for you guys in October. I know we, we really hadn't done a lot of the uh, interviews and stuff like that. But we've got such good things working. I mean, I'm working with Ghost Brothers, Chip Coffee. Um, it's just going to be a big list of people yeah. that we're going to try to get on for October because that's the creepy time of the year. Very exciting. Yeah. Looking forward to it. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.